Welcome to Wilderness Podcast, a passion project about wilderness and wild places, with your host, Adam Bronstein. If you're listening to this program via weblink, whether it's on Facebook or Twitter or Buzzsprout, please X out of that and pick up your phone, whether it's an Android or an Apple, and head over to your favorite podcasting app and search for Wilderness Podcast, and you'll find the green logo with the bear. And there you can subscribe, you'll catch future episodes, and you can browse back to previous episodes, and you can pick up where you left off with this one. And that way you'll uh, you'll stay up to date on new releases. Sorry to be coming at you a little bit later than usual. Of course, I've been preparing for extended periods of time, hunkered down in the house here because of the coronavirus outbreak. I wish everybody well and um, hope you're able to get outside and enjoy some fresh air. Before jumping into the episode, I'd like to take this opportunity to announce the launch of my new filmmaking service targeted at conservation, wildlife, public lands, and wilderness nonprofits across the country. Film and digital video is a proven way of reaching audiences and making strong emotional appeals. It is one of the best investments that you can make as an organization in getting your message out to the public. If you are interested in highlighting the work of your organization or looking to feature a specific campaign, my team and I would love to see how we can help you. To see my latest work, Yellowstone Uncompromised, a film project that I produced for the Gallatin Yellowstone Wilderness Alliance in Bozeman, Montana. And to learn more about my services, please visit wildernesspodcast.com backslash filmmaking. You can also find a link right on the homepage. In this episode, I speak with Bill Hodge, the executive director with the Bob Marshall Wilderness Foundation in Montana. We talk about Bob Marshall, the man, the history of the founding of the Wilderness Society, the Bob Marshall Wilderness Complex, Bill's background, what he learned working on wilderness and trails issues in Tennessee for the Southern Appalachian Wilderness Stewards, getting people connected with the wilderness idea, Montanans' attitudes towards wilderness, mountain biking and wilderness, collaboration and compromise, and what his organization does. I had a great chat with Bill, and it's always interesting talking with people with different backgrounds and perspectives. I hope you enjoyed the episode. Hey, Bill, thanks for joining me on the podcast today. Well, thanks for the opportunity to join you. I'm really looking forward to the conversation. How's everything in Montana? Well, it is, uh, of course, snowy. <laughs> Um, but uh, things are great in Montana. Um, you know, it's, it is uh, for me, somebody who is a bit of a uh, a nerd about all things wilderness. It is definitely uh, sort of ground zero uh, for that, and it it just makes it a pretty special place to get to to hang out a shingle and, and work for wilderness. So, so where exactly are you located? So our office for the Bob Marshall Wilderness Foundation is in Hungry Horse, Montana, uh, which is. Um, just off the northwest corner of the Bob Marshall Wilderness Complex, um, and and uh, in the Flathead Valley, so northwest Montana, uh, not far from the Idaho Panhandle, and only about 50 miles south of the Canadian border, and uh, also just outside Glacier National Park, which is of course part of the Northern Rockies ecosystem. So you're right in the Flathead Valley. Yeah, right in the Flathead Valley offices. Uh, we actually are housed inside uh, the Hungry Horse Ranger District office for the Flathead National Forest. Uh, how was your trip out to Bend? Uh, you, it was the National Wilderness Stewardship Alliance Conference, right? Yeah, uh, yeah. what's now called the National Wilderness Workshop. Um, for years, it had been the National Wilderness Stewardship Alliance's annual conference from uh, about 2011 to 2013. Uh, in 14, uh, during the 50th anniversary, several organizations sort of came together and did a pre-conference workshop at the the, the big 50th celebration in Albuquerque. And after that, we all put our heads together and said, why don't we make this a sort of a joint venture? And so now it's a, a joint venture of the National Wilderness Stewardship Alliance, which I served on the, the board for six years and a couple of years as chair, and then, and then the Society for Wilderness Stewardship um, and uh, agency partners as well. Um, and so coming out of the 50th, we did a couple of years in Missoula, uh, and then started moving it around, and and uh, I thought Ben was uh, probably the best one we've had yet. It was pretty uh, pretty successful. We'd been in Gunnison, Colorado the year before that, and Russellville, Arkansas the year before that, and but uh, I, it's really growing, um, drawing a pretty 
wide range of folks who are involved in wilderness stewardship, whether they work for an organization whose sole mission is is stewarding our wilderness preservation system or organizations who maybe, you know, sort of touch the wilderness preservation system through uh, related work, like like the National Scenic Trail organizations and that sort of thing. Uh, and what sort of topics do you guys cover and what's the what's the theme of the conference? Uh, so every year varies a little bit. Uh, there generally is one overriding theme, and this year it was sort of focused on the idea of taking a recreationist and uh, converting them into a steward um, and sort of that focus on how we engage specific recreation communities to uh, to get involved in stewarding uh, wilderness. year before that in Gunnison, we had really focused on our efforts sort of nationally to try to bring uh, the full suite of the American public in, into their public lands and specifically into the wilderness idea. Um, and so that was very focused on diversity, equity, and inclusion. And so each year is a little bit different. This year, again, focused on sort of that conversion of the, of the recreationist into a steward. Hey, cool. Yeah, do you want to talk about Bob Marshall a little bit? Um... Yeah, sure. I think it's part of, the, part of uh, what was so exciting about my opportunity to come and lead this great organization was, was being... Uh, you know, pretty, you know, pretty in tune with how influential Bob is to, to the system that we have today in this country. You know, Bob, Bob got an awful lot squeezed into 38 years of life. Uh, you know, those who don't know Bob's story, you know, recently shared a little bit of um, details of his life and in, in something I wrote um, that you know he only lived to be 38 years old, but he was so instrumental in uh, the wilderness movement to to this day. But Bob. You know, Bob was a, a bit of an iconoclast to me. He was he was a socialist who was a millionaire who was a United States Forest Service employee. So um try rolling that all into one. Um he was he was quite the quite the interesting character. He was an avid, avid lover and user of our public lands besides being a, a servant as a as a public land servant working for the Forest Service and he wrote some of the early regulations that would very much influence the the Wilderness Act itself when it was passed in 64. You know, but sadly, Bob had some some health issues, uh, some that I think many folks didn't know, and passed away in his sleep um, at 38 years old in 1939. And a year later, he was had been so influential in the agency is when the Forest Service first administratively designated the Bob Marshall Wilderness. Um, and so in 2020, we're celebrating 80 years of the Bob Marshall Wilderness because of the man, Bob Marshall. You know, I, I'm relatively new to Northwest Montana, and it's pretty interesting. You can't go, I can't go anywhere. When I tell people, you know, what I what my role is as the executive director of the Bob Marshall Wilderness Foundation, then I don't hear, oh, I love the Bob. And it makes you think a lot about people love the Bob and, and do they know the man? And many do, but many times if I throw the question back to them, do you know who Bob was? They, they think, oh, he was a senator, you know, some sort of elected official. Uh, and yet his influence is uh, somebody posted on, on the piece I wrote recently that Bob Marshall might be the greatest American that nobody knows. You know, he was he was that influential in the public land system we have today, not just the wilderness preservation system we have. Yeah, Bob's one of my favorite historical wilderness characters. He he could be my my all time favorite. Uh, well, you guys sort of have a con a connection to the Adirondacks, am I right? Yeah. Um, well, we have a, a bunch of different connections. So we we share the same birthday. Um, oh wow! So I haven't uh, I haven't quite hit my thirty eighth birthday. So I'm um, I'm still in good shape there. Because <laughs> they, they say wilderness kills, you know. So uh. Uh, we went to the same school. Actually, his father, Lewis Marshall, helped founded the State University of New York College of Environmental Science and Forestry in Syracuse. And I was a member of his hiking club there. It's called the Bob Marshall Club, and they're still active today, which is really exciting. Uh, I think they've been active since since Bob was around. Um, so I got to haunt the halls that Bob Marshall. Oh wow! Haunted. Oh, boy, now I'm jealous. Well, see, that's I pretty, didn't. That's pretty cool. I didn't really connect all the dots at that point. I was still, um, well, I'm still pretty naive. But you know, back then I was especially naive. Um, I didn't, uh, I didn't really get the have the full grasp of who this uh, Bob Marshall guy was. But in the years after, you know, leaving college and and doing some more reading, it it, 
it became apparent to me just how incredible this this guy was and his selflessness. And yes, he did explore a lot in the Adirondacks. He would take off on these extremely long hiking trips. Um, he, he spent time up at the Ranger School, which is near Cranberry Lake. It's in the western part of the Adirondacks. But he would, he would just take off and, uh, and walk to the High Peaks region and, um, and climb a few peaks. His family also had a camp on Saranac Lake. There's some pretty, pretty interesting history. And you know, Bob did a lot of travel on the west and, and in Alaska, extremely influential guy and yeah i do encourage people to read up on him yeah he, he's he's just incredible um what he accomplished in 38 years and, and you know he funded the startup of the wilderness society he was there and i think a lot of people uh, don't know this story I, I started my work in wilderness in the east and it's very easy when you work in wilderness to sort of think about western landscapes and I, I used to get pretty uh, uh, pretty aggressively wanting to make sure people knew that there were eastern origins to the Wilderness Act. And, and one of my favorite stories is actually the, the formation of the Wilderness Society, which if you, if you look at their website, they started in 1935 because that was the first official meeting of the society, which was in Washington, D.C. But uh, it actually grew out of a very animated conversation uh, at a foresters convention in Knoxville, Tennessee, the year before that in 1934 and there was a, a field trip uh, like there are at those sort of gatherings and and the car had bob and and bernard frank who were both forest service employees at the time it had benton mckay who at the time was working for the tennessee valley authority but most probably famously known for the guy who had a vision for a trail running from georgia to maine that we all now know of as the appalachian trail and wrote wrote a piece about that. And then the fourth person in the car was was Harvey Broom, who was a lawyer from Knoxville, Tennessee. And um, Harvey was pretty up in arms about plans to build a road in the high country of the Blue Ridge, uh, which today is the Blue Ridge Parkway. And he was pretty frustrated that there was not enough being done to try to stop this um, sort of defiling of, of the remaining wild country in the southeast United States. And the story goes that the conversation boiled over, the radiator boiled over, and they pulled over and sat on the side of the road on a little grassy hillside, and they uh, wrote the Articles of Incorporation of the Wilderness Society right there in southeast Tennessee. Um, and so there's Bob again in the middle of it all. And then a year later, when the organization gets lifted off the ground with the first meeting of the of the society, Bob was almost solely the person who funded the startup. So. Yeah, he's he's quite the character. I um in 2013 I was uh, honored with the the Bob Marshall uh, Award from the Forest Service for a, as an external champion of wilderness stewardship, and I dove into I wanted to know everything I knew. I mean I knew who Bob was generally at the time, but I needed to know you know everything about the man. And to this day, um, I, I will consume anything I can find about him. So, do you have any resources that you like especially that you could recommend to people? Well, the the book uh, that folks should start with is is uh, called a, a Wilderness Original: The Life of Bob Marshall. That's where I would start. Um, uh, of course, pretty much anything on the Wilderness Act that you can find is going to have Bob's fingerprints on it. And going back to the U regulations that helped inform, you know, what was in the Wilderness Act itself. But definitely start with that biography called A Wilderness Original. Yeah, James Glover, I believe, wrote that. Um, yeah, I, I had I had it around somewhere. I need to pick up another copy and, and refresh myself. But yeah, a real fantastic man, an incredible life, and I'm glad that you're promoting his legacy and uh, talking about him because the Bob Marshall Wilderness is a magnificent place, and it's uh, it's it's really really important for people to to understand who this man is and and who he was and um, what what the name's all about. So tell me about the Bob a little bit. Sure. Um, you know, it's kind of funny. I think I think Bob might might sort of be spinning in his grave over a place being named for him like that. But because it just, I don't think it was in his nature. You know, when he wrote, uh, he he spent time in in uh, the Alaska bush, and he wrote a book about that experience. And the proceeds from that book, he shared with the. You, you probably know all this, but for for the listeners, he shared the proceeds from that book with all the people he wrote about that he he spent. 
that season with in Alaska. But the the complex itself is is pretty interesting. As I said, it you know this this year 2020 is is the 80th anniversary of the agency, the Forest Service, first designating this designating this part of the Northern Rockies as the Bob Marshall Wilderness, and that was because Bob had died the year before. The complex itself is is actually three different wilderness areas that are all connected. Um, the Bob Marshall Wilderness, which was designated uh, formally by Congress in 1964 when the Wilderness Act passed, then the Scapegoat Wilderness, which is on sort of the southern end of the complex, down on what they used to call the Lincoln Backcountry, um, was in 1974, and that was the first example of a citizen-driven campaign. And we can kind of come back to that idea in a minute. And then in 1978, the Great Bear Wilderness, which is on the northern end of the complex uh, and almost immediately adjoins Glacier National Park. So if you put the three wilderness areas together, they add up to a million and a half acres, a little more than a million and a half acres. And it's it's really one place. It has has those three different names just because components of the geography were designated on the, in those three different years. But, you know, there's so many compelling pieces to it. it while... The Bob itself wasn't the first place to be called, you know, wilderness administratively. That was, of course, down in the Gila country. But you have this this place that was named for uh, for such a sort of one of the founding fathers of the of the wilderness movement. You've got the scapegoat, which was uh, an example of something that couldn't have happened if there hadn't been an evolution of how the Wilderness Act was written. So, 1956, when the Wilderness Act is introduced. Uh, the the first draft said that for an area to become wilderness, an agency had to recommend it. And if Congress didn't act to overturn that recommendation in five years, it became wilderness. So Congress's only role would have been to have act, sort of acted in the negative, to step in and tell the agency no. But that also would have meant that literally nothing becomes becomes wilderness if the agency didn't recommend it. Of course, the bill gets rewritten 60-plus times from 1956 till its final passage in 64. And in the end, while it added that very daunting step of Congress actually has to pass a bill to add a unit to the wilderness preservation system, to add any acres to the wilderness preservation system, it took away the, any language that said that it first had to be recommended by the agency. And at the time... In the 1970s, the agency was wanting to build a scenic byway uh, up into the Lincoln backcountry, and it was the local community that rose up, local conservationists, a local owner of a hardware store, and ended up getting that area designated as wilderness, even though the Forest Service didn't want it to be. Um, and that's now a part of the Bob Marshall Wilderness Complex, and it's it's a pretty special place. But uh, so that's a, a little bit of the story of the place. There are, of course, a thousand stories about about the work and and uh, uh, that that it took to get these uh, these places designated. A, a book I would highly recommend is called "Where Roads Will Never Reach," written by Fred Swanson, um, which is a, about the wilderness movement in the Northern Rockies in general, and of course. The Bob is a big part of that, as as well as sort of the Selway Bitterroot Country and the Absarca Beartooth Country. But um, yeah, the Bob's it's it's a pretty special place, and I'm very fortunate to just sort of be in my infancy of exploring it, having just uh, arrived in Montana earlier this year. Can you describe the landscape a little bit? Yeah, it's it's pretty incredibly varied. Um, on the west side, where where we're housed here, and Hungry Horse is. Very lush. While while I wouldn't call it, you know, sort of as lush as the rainforest of the Pacific Northwest where you are, it's pretty verdant, pretty you know, uh, pretty pretty heavily vegetated. But all you have to do is sort of drift across the Continental Divide, and the east side is very different. It's very stark. Um, one, it's it's a dramatic contrast on the east side where you go to go from sort of the plains into what they call the Rocky Mountain Front. And um, it's that dramatic relief change from the plains, and you're in this sort of flat ranch country, and then and then you're looking at this relief, and then the Lincoln sort of country on the southern end is is sort of plateaus, and it's and it's uh, you know different yet from the other, you know sort of the the east and west sides as well, and so it's it's really varied, and and the scale is so large that it's not like a mountain range. It's it's actually about seven or eight different mountain ranges that make up the whole complex. Um, and they play this role in this larger, you know, sort of Rocky Mountain ecosystem that includes Glacier National Park, which is about a million acres. And then, and then of course, all the 
wild country in the Canadian Rockies. But it's it's home to lots of large carnivores, um, very healthy uh, and growing grizzly bear population, um, healthy black bear population, mountain lions. Uh, there's somewhere north of 10 wolf packs um, in the Bob. And uh, the scale is sort of what allows that. And of course, there's a substantial, not just one, but several substantial elk herds that, that uh, make summer range in the Bob. And, and uh, some of them even make winter winter range in the Bob as well. And it's pretty it's pretty interesting. Earlier earlier before this conversation in the last few days, I've been over on the east side in Shoto, Montana, and, and uh, thinking about time spent on the east side and how different things are and, and uh, on, on what we call the east side of the complex. And now back in Hungry Horse and looking out, looking out at the pretty heavily forested hillside. So. That sounds beautiful. I've been up to the Flathead Valley and to Glacier a couple times. I have not been into the complex it is on my life list for sure. <laughs> yeah, gotta make it, gotta make it here. Yeah, so I I do look forward to those days um, in the future. Uh, I spend yeah. most of my time in Montana around uh, the Livingston area. Oh, okay, um, but I do need to venture up that way uh, and spend some serious time in the Bob. Uh, yeah, and- there's so many so many different ways to get in. You know, the the complex is so big that it sits on three different national forests and sits on three different districts, which which makes its management complex, literally. Um, and uh, But yeah, you, you got to come experience it. It's pretty special. And um, whether on foot or on horseback, it's a, it's a great place to get to enjoy. How many visitors make it into the complex every year? You know, that's a good question, Adam. Uh, I, I don't have that number in front of me, but um, there are, of course, a number of outfitters that, that take people in but I don't I don't have that number actually what the total visitation is I just came back from the complex managers meeting and you know wrestling with you know how how they maintain numbers at a, a level that's not going to degrade wilderness character and and um, I I would say that I have the sense that it is not of course as as overrun as some of the challenges like they face in Oregon um, with having to look at uh, at a permit system that limits, um, you know, even just the general public use, but they do certainly limit the the outfitter and guide uh, services that are in there in terms of you know dealing with places within the complex that are getting pretty heavily used, and that that maybe we have to pay attention to that. And uh, the of course one of the most iconic places in the Bob is the Chinese Wall. Everybody that goes in the Bob wants to go to the wall in the south end of the of the wall is, is, um, gets a tremendous amount of use. It's also the Continental Divide uh, Trail passes through there. And, and so you sort of this convergent of uses, convergence of uses. And, and, uh, but I don't, I don't have the sort of total number. And I, I think it, it might be a big enough complex that that might even be hard to pin down in general. What is the Chinese wall? So it's, it's a, a thousand feet and above an immediate relief. Uh, and it runs 42 miles. And it's, it is one of the most sort of dramatic geological features I've seen in this country. It's, it's, um, you know, in a lot of the complex are these old reefs, you know, they're mountains today, but they were reefs at one time. And, uh, but the wall is literally this sort of, uh, sharp face, dramatic wall that runs 43 miles and it's right in the right in the heart of the bob itself and in the heart of the complex so i want to learn a little bit more about you bill where did you grow up and uh what was your what were some of your first wilderness experiences uh, so i grew up in western north carolina in a little town outside of hickory north carolina and when i was 10 years old my parents bought a pop-up camper we immediately started exploring public lands and the, the first place we went was just a um couple hours away up in the uh, mountain range called the Black Mountains on the Pisgah National Forest. Um, the Blacks are the highest mountain range east of the Mississippi River, and, and uh, I was hooked immediately. Um, and out of out of the Blacks, we would sort of base our trips to then go hike everywhere. And the first wilderness that I set foot in would be the Linville Gorge Wilderness there on the Pisgah National Forest, and actually one of three wilderness areas in the east that were in the original 64 Act. Um, and so sort of cut my teeth hiking there in the mountains of Western North Carolina, but eventually our adventures took us um, here to Montana. I can remember uh, laying in that pop-up camper and reading a book called A Night of the Grizzlies while camped in the middle of Glacier National Park, where uh, the book, of course, was documenting the 
the first fatalities from from grizzly bears in the park's history. And and uh, as a 14 year old reading that book and uh, getting pretty wild eyed uh, about the experience we were about to have in Glacier National Park, but we explored you know into the Olympic Peninsula and um, North Cascades and of course the, the Yellowstone and the Tetons, but. I, I came to the wilderness world, and I, as as a kid, from I mean, I was hooked. I wanted to work for public lands, but life as it does takes a detour. And I spent 25 years in the, sort of the marketing and advertising world, but found my way back to public lands uh, a little over a decade ago by first getting involved in a, a wilderness designation campaign in Tennessee on the Cherokee National Forest. I was living in Tennessee at the time, and professionally had been working there um, and had been living in the middle of the Cherokee National Forest, about an hour and a half south of Knoxville. And I started volunteering for a campaign called Tennessee Wild and trying to get 20,000 acres designated. Was kind of shocked as a volunteer to find out that the biggest opposition to getting that bill passed was the recreation community and specifically the hiking community who were were really sort of involved in in keeping trails open um in the east there wasn't what you would call a forest service trail crew that was out uh doing trail work there were trail specialists that work on worked on all the districts and and all the forests but a lot of that work was fallen to these small local volunteer clubs, mostly made up of volunteers. And some of them, you know, liked the convenience of their chainsaw, liked the convenience of their weed eaters to keep the trails open. And I was kind of shocked to find out that people who love to experience these wild places were also concerned to the point of actually being opposed to uh, seeing more acres designated as wilderness, even though they'd been recommended in the Cherokee Forest Management Plan in 2004. Um, and the more I sort of dug into this issue of would access be a problem, uh, the more I realized that people were sort of disconnected from the wilderness idea because they were mostly looking at public lands as a recreation resource. Um, and if we were going to have a constituency that loved wild places, we were going to have to make them accessible um, and keep trails open, but we we're also going to have to sort of pay attention to are we also keeping them wild and and. June of 2004, the Wilderness Society, Southern Appalachian Office, the Appalachian Trail Conservancy, and um, and I at the time was was working on this Tennessee Wild campaign as a contractor. At this point, we we convened what we called the Wilderness Trail Summit at uh, Montreat College in Black Mountain, North Carolina. We brought trail clubs from all over the uh, the Southern Appalachians and sort of let people vent, uh, if you will, about what their concerns might be about wilderness and, um, designations and, um, you know, what it is that they were sort of looking for, all, all of which I'd been hearing as I had been out on the trails with these folks, because of when I first started dealing with this opposition, the first thing I did was to sort of roll up my sleeves and get out there with a crosscut saw and, and take care of these places that they were concerned about. And I'd been hearing all these concerns and this, the two biggest concerns were they they saw the the conservation organizations that were behind these designations were perceived by these local small trail clubs as they come in they draw a line on the map and then they disappear and um and then the second thing that these clubs were concerned about is where were all the young people these clubs again being made up of mostly retirees um and so at the end of that trail summit in uh, in 2010 um, I said, what if there was an organization whose mission it was to connect a younger and much more diverse generation to public lands through service, and in doing so, create capacity to help make sure that we keep these trails accessible and become a partner in these wilderness areas in the Southern Appalachians? And there was sort of a collective huzzah. And um, later that year, I went about starting an organization that's um, called Southern Appalachian Wilderness Stewards, or SAWS for short. Everybody refers to it as SAWS, which I knew the minute we came up with that acronym that that would, would be what it would be called. And uh, and so I sort of ran that organization, um, built that organization from 2010 and, uh, until making the move out here to Montana in, in 2019. Oh, that's a cool backstory. So what would you say you learned most from, from your time out there? And uh, what, what did you take with you out to Montana? I, I man, so many things. The probably the the first thing was making sure that the work we do is for wilderness as a whole. Um, being very focused on the idea that we can be a partner for the agency, but we should be a partner across the board and not just a partner that keeps trails open. And that that really came from the relationship that I was fortunate enough to have during those years in the Southern Appalachians with 
the United States Forest Service, and and we sort of together pioneered sort of a relationship that was built around a shoulder-to-shoulder relationship. It wasn't sort of face-to-face, but rather shoulder-to-shoulder. We were in this together to help preserve wilderness character, but also protect access. And on the nonprofit side, I always took the approach that we work with and not on. Uh, and by that, I mean a lot of a lot of there's a lot of organizations that do volunteer work or or even do paid work on Forest Service land, and they do the work on the land. But I look at it as we work with the Forest Service to help accomplish what their needs are. And uh, very early on, and and as just even thinking about getting Southern Appalachian Wilderness Stewards off the ground. Was fortunate to connect with with uh, Jimmy Godry, who was at the time the Regional Wilderness and Wild Scenic Rivers Program Manager for Region Eight of the Forest Service, which is the Southeast. And he he made it clear that they didn't need just a partner for the trails and wilderness; they needed a holistic partner. And really grounded what Saws became based on that relationship. And so Saws didn't just become an organization that did trail work. It, uh, you know, by the time I left in 2019. Saws was employing 15, you know, somewhere between 12 and 17 wilderness rangers and wilderness specialists who weren't there to do trail work. They were doing wilderness character monitoring work. Um, they were there as a as a resource to engage the public. You know, if we were having issues in a wilderness, in the Shining Rock Wilderness, for example, in the last few years, black bears being habituated to humans equals food had become a problem, and the Forest Service had to institute a a bear canister closure, meaning you couldn't overnight camp if you didn't have a bear canister with you. You couldn't just hang your food. We were the resource that would be out there on the trails making sure people knew that that requirement was in place. Meanwhile, we also had crews that all, you know, what they did was wilderness trail work, and, and we valued building the traditional skills that you have to have to be productive and effective working in wilderness. And so all of that I brought with me to Montana, but then what I walked into in Montana is this phenomenal organization in the Bob Marshall Wilderness Foundation that's been doing partnership work with the Forest Service since 1996, um, primarily focused on, matter of fact, most of them would say, we're the Bob Marshall Wilderness Foundation, we move dirt, was primarily focused on trail work, and we're shifting a little bit to, to be more involved as a sort of an education and interpretation partner with the agency, but sort of bringing that same sort of shoulder-to-shoulder relationship thinking. But I didn't have to bring it and somehow transform something that was already going on here um, with the foundation. Um, And probably what I've learned the most since getting here is how powerfully this organization has been at connecting folks to their public lands through volunteerism. The, The foundation runs 40 volunteer adventure trips every year into the Bob all of those people giving of their time and getting connected to the Bob Marshall wilderness and to the wilderness idea in a very tangible way because they're getting dirt under their fingernails and they're, you know, sort of giving their blood, sweat and tears to this place and they leave sort of transformed. And meanwhile, they've also helped the place remain accessible and wild. And so that's kind of interesting bringing, you know, what was really wild to me is, and I knew this, but just the thought behind when I left Saws, we were had had grown to where we were working in seven states and 64 wilderness areas. If you roll all of those wilderness areas together, they're less than a third of the size of the Pub Marshall Wilderness Complex. So the challenges are very different, and I'm learning what all the challenges are here versus the challenges that we faced on on the East Coast. Uh, what's the spectrum of, of wilderness attitudes? out in Montana, mostly supportive. Uh, what do you hear? Yeah, I think, I think we most, I, I would say mostly supportive. I mean, any place is going to have folks who have different designs on our public lands. And sometimes those folks just maybe have the perception that, uh, that all of its wilderness and all of it's sort of been removed from resource extraction. And you have to sort of remind people that you know, nationally less than than 20% of our public lands are designated as wilderness, and it's less than 5% of our land mass as a country. You know, Montana is, is different than what I had experienced in the East Coast. I was surprised a little bit in the East Coast who, who maybe became stridently opposed to the idea of wilderness versus those who support it. Uh, the biggest difference being the hunting and angling community in the um, on the on the East Coast is not as as pro-wilderness as you might think. And matter of fact, particularly several in the hunting community are 
are pretty focused on early successional habitat, and so the, they're what I would call almost hostile to the wilderness idea. But you get to Montana, and, and some of the best wilderness conservationists and preservationists you're going to find are the are or the is the hunting community, and of course, sort of exemplified by the backcountry hunters and anglers, which is. Uh, probably had its biggest presence here in Montana and, of course, growing across the country. But do you run into people in Montana who, who have questions about the wilderness idea, of course? And it's like all of America, not all of us agree on on everything. I think, you know, working in stewardship and having worked in designations is two, two very different worlds. I, I have yet to meet somebody in Montana, as I, as I said earlier, when I say what I do as the executive director of the Bob Marshall Wilderness Foundation, it doesn't immediately say, I love the Bob. Um, so people love the place. And what I have found about Montana is a lot of them actually know what the word wilderness means to for the Bob complex. And, and that is different from the East, where a lot of my time was spent helping people understand what the wilderness preservation system was. What the why the Wilderness Act came to be, but I think in in Montana, by and large, the public welcome the idea. We certainly people have disagreements on certain places and whether they should be wilderness or not. And I have you know, been following your podcast. I you know heard your conversation with George Worth there, and I don't don't know if I agree with some of George's assertions about the modern day efforts to get wilderness protections done. Um, but uh, but by and large, I think people do find a way to find consensus and and um, recognize the value of wildlands. I think I, I tell people the Bob Marshall Wilderness Complex to me is a distillation of what is Montana. It's big, open, wild country. And that is Montana. And people, I think, pride themselves on that. You know, I'll never get to be able to call myself a Montana because I wasn't born here and wasn't raised here and I'm not multi-generational. I do tell people I got here as fast as I could. But what I do know about Montanans is they value that they live in big, open, wild country, and therefore they value places like the Bob. Yeah, it was an interesting conversation with George, and um, you know some of his uh, the areas he operates. There's some controversy uh, going on now with the Gallatin Range, for instance. Um, sure. So there can be, and, and that's been going, and that's been going on for a while. <laughs> yeah, it has been going on for a while, and it uh, you know who knows where this will go. It it could just very interesting story to follow. So, you know, maybe some of what he said sounded like generalizations, um, and maybe he was making some generalizations, but, but what were some of your reactions to, to some of the things he was saying? You know, I, I think my biggest challenge of, the, of what he said was, and I've been dealing sort of with this notion since 2015, the, when the first when we first started calling it the National Wilderness Workshop, and we had the first one after the 50th anniversary in Missoula, um, uh, and I think George was there uh, along with Stuart Brandborg, there was a, an attempt to really undermine the idea of collaboration. And of course, George talked about that in his visit with you. I, I understand and respect his perception of the constraints that collaboration can put us in, but I don't think we should throw the baby out with the bathwater. I do think collaboration is a tool that can be used to not only recognize other folks' values, but making sure people have a chance to hear why it is those of us that love the wilderness idea and love the wilderness preservation system, why our values mean something, not just to us, but, but to others. And so I think, I think my if I had a visceral negative reaction, it was what I did think was a uh, pretty significant generalization from George. Uh, none of this do I want to take away from George's phenomenal work. I don't know George personally, but I, I certainly know of not only the work that he talked about when his visit with you, but other other work that, that he's been involved in in land protections and, and uh, thinking about ecosystem functions and those sort of things. But but I, I having been involved and, and before moving to Montana, I was very involved in uh, the forest plan revision process and two different collaboratives on the Nantahala Pisgah National Forest in Western North Carolina. Um, and there were moments where I, I wanted to walk out of the room and said, I, I'm done with collaboration. But there were also moments when I saw people go, okay, I can respect your values if you can respect. And and so I, I sort of, I had that reaction. I think, I, I think the other thing that I would challenge George on is I almost took it as he painted it as a bad thing that people are now paid professionals for wilderness conservation organizations. I, I get that the pursuit may seem more noble if, if it's you know, not done by people who are getting paid, but um, there's important work being done by people that work for organizations like the Montana Wilderness Association and others. And I completely 
agree and support the idea that George can disagree with any maybe consensus that's come out of MWA or the Wilderness Society when it comes to the stuff that he's so passionate about in the Gallatin. And I think he I think he was fair to recognize that they kind of do want the same thing that he wants. Um, but I think their work is just as valuable in the way that they do their work and the, as as to the way George does his work. Um, but it will be interesting. I, I, I will say I'm very thrilled to get to Montana and focus my energy on stewardship. I've been involved in collaboration and in wilderness campaign work and, and uh, you know, ultimately got to celebrate a year ago in December uh, that we got the Tennessee Wilderness Bill. That was the whole start of my sort of wilderness professional track. Uh, and we got that done, but I'm very thankful to sort of put my energy behind places that are already, um, you know, part of the wilderness preservation system. Right. And that's sort of the, where the rubber meets the road now is uh, our remaining wilderness study areas. And what are we going to do? Are we going to protect them as wilderness or are we going to carve them up? And uh, yeah, it is, um, you kind of have to look at each and every collaboration and and it's okay to be critical and it's okay to talk about things that make us a little uncomfortable but you know these discussions are, sure. are so important and yeah uh, absolutely i mean I, I i that's true with the conversation you had uh with jay baird calicott um i uh, i think he had sort of a great you know story of the of the arc of wilderness thought i maybe had a reaction to his comment that he and bill cronin had sort of debunked the wilderness idea because i i tend to think of the wilderness idea as still on a continuum right there's no question. Everything that 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 he spoke about, and of course the great, I think both of the those books, the the Great Wilderness Debate and the Debate Rages On, or uh, if if you really want to work in this world, they're they're must reads because uh, we have to we have to challenge the way we think all the time. And I agree with, I think a lot of your all's conversation was around the idea that you know sort of wilderness is 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 definitely in the you know Western thought construct. There is a lot of that, and there is that the arc that started in the 1820s from, you know, as we started to think about wilderness as a place, or wild places as a place to be revered versus conquered and, and, and made productive, all the way to 1964 when we passed the Wilderness Act to, to 2019, where, where, you know, Dr. Calicut can question whether wilderness is still a valid idea. I, there is a lot of inherent flaws in that, and, and probably most importantly, the idea that places that we now call the Bob Marshall Wilderness actually are the home of the Salish, Kootenai, and, and Blackfeet people. Uh, and they're not wilderness at all. They're somebody's home. But that doesn't make current evolution of wilderness thought any less valid than wilderness thought that led to the Wilderness Act passing in 1964. And I think there, and, and he acknowledged this, there are lots of benefits that come out of the wilderness preservation system. I mentioned all of the large carnivores that I think only thrive in northwest Montana because of places like the Bob where they have large, intact, functional ecosystems. And that's, you know, if that's sort of why we think about wilderness today are those sort of things versus maybe maybe the more aesthetic values that earlier folks had, it's just a continuum and it's it's not debunked or dead. It's just heading in a new place. And that does help inform with what do we do about the wilderness study areas that are either recommended but still haven't you know, don't have congr- uh, congressional support, or wilderness study areas that that uh, maybe aren't recommended by the agency today, uh, or, or what about recommended wilderness acres, and what do we do about non-conforming uses in recommended wilderness? It's not wilderness yet. Congress hasn't designated it, but the agency is charged with protecting its long-term wilderness values, and if the agency was bold enough to say, yes, this place should be wilderness, why should we then allow non-conforming uses in that area? And a lot of and back to Montana sort of being ground zero for a lot of wilderness issues. That's that that is definitely a place that Montana has going on in spades. So yeah, it's good to continue the discussion around wilderness for sure. It's a an evolving thing, yep. and it's always yep. changing, just like uh, the wilderness itself, I suppose. And sure. I I would agree that it's such an important concept for uh, us as Westerners. It it doesn't um, necessarily dovetail very well with traditional Native American. Uh, lifestyles and definitely poses a a problem but i think you know for western society it really is this important concept and we can continue to improve upon it Uh, yeah no question one of my concerns is that we do have what 2.7 percent of the lower 48 is in wilderness and right you know our, our land uh our land 
protection opportunities are dwindling. And if we take a, uh, I don't want to say a purity uh, position on wilderness, uh, not that, you know, looking at uh, its its past uses and, and discounting its its quality, I guess I'm talking about compromising and not so much as it relates to collaboratives, but I just have a real concern that that we're not gonna we're gonna squander opportunities to to protect all that we can, and uh, I know that this is this is sort of the flashpoint. So, what, what do you think about? Oh, sure. What, what do you think about wilderness study areas and and breaking them up as a part of compromise and and collaboration efforts? Well, I, you know, I was a part of that in North Carolina. There's there are, there's actually some congressionally designated wilderness study areas in North Carolina. There's five of them. Uh, on the Nantahala Pisgah, and in the current plan, which goes back to the 1980s, that they're still under, only three of those areas are recommended, and two of them aren't. So they're they're wilderness study areas, but again, three that are still are recommended in the old plan. Pretty confident they'll be recommended in the new plan. But but by the way, one of those wilderness study areas that's recommended is sort of prime uh, sits in a spot where it's sort of bifurcating some sort of separating some mountain bike ride opportunities and through conversation uh an agreement was was hammered out that said if if the folks who were interested in wilderness would would let go of uh places called harper creek as um as being for being recommended for wilderness in the new plan would the mountain bikers support all of these other places um, that were not going to impact their opportunities that they were currently looking at or were currently riding? And I, I actually thought it was a really good piece of conservation work. Um, it it blew up pretty significantly, as most things do come back to NIMBY, people who uh, either had a very specific interest um, in seeing Harper Creek remain at least recommended. And some people look at the finish line as differently. Some people look at the finish line as just getting the place recommended versus actually ending up on a president's desk and getting signed into law. But but that whole agreement sort of blew up because of people who would not let go of Harper Creek becoming or remaining recommended for wilderness and, and maybe hopefully becoming wilderness someday. But in the but in the meanwhile, you blew up an, blew up an agreement that 18 different mountain bike clubs had signed off onto that recommended 110,000 acres of wilderness on a 1.1 million acre forest. And so this is happening in other places. And of course, it's a challenge here in Montana as well. I've, I've had dear friends of mine who who are, have given lots of their life to the wilderness um, idea who have challenged me to think about the idea of what if what if of the remaining inventory roadless areas we had, if we Cut, we could, we could we cut some grand bargain about how much of it we'd be willing to let go to allow mountain bikers as an example. There's of course a lot of other controversy, but mountain bikers to have wild backcountry to be able to ride. If it meant we could get the other half designated, and that's a that's a sit and scratch your head and think really hard about what it is that we value and 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 why we value it. Um, and I don't and I don't think there's a super easy answer there on what that means. I mean, I, I've been involved not only in conversations in North Carolina, but, but honestly in D.C. at the national level on this on this idea of of the erosion of support of wilderness, sometimes driven you know, by, by a community like the mountain bike community or, or sometimes driven by uh, the extraction industry. Though I, honestly, I think they're not the culprit as much as people think they are. You know, there, there are super nuanced things like those who just think that in an area era of rapid climate change, there are some places that we maybe need to do a lot of ecological intervention, and therefore, is it is it going to be wilderness? You know, at the National Wilderness Workshop in in Durango, Colorado, uh, um, not Durango, sorry, uh, where were we? We had a conversation and Rod, led by Roger Kay with the Fish and Wildlife Service out of Alaska, where he 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 opened the idea of of splitting the the wilderness preservation system in half. That so much of it. If we want to protect natural, the natural quality needs to be, there needs to be intervention. But then we start getting into what I think is beautiful about the Wilderness Act is, is it makes us think, are the, are the, the five qualities of wilderness equal or is the untrammeled quality trump all? You know, that those sort of things all challenge this idea of what do we do with areas that aren't designated yet? Uh, what do we do about areas that are designated but might be prime locations to think about doing white bark pine restoration. But again, to me, that's part of what makes the act 
a beautiful thing is it's it makes you think all the time. But I I feel like I completely dodged the question about wilderness study areas and what are we going to do about them. I, I think I think they should all go through the process under the new 2012 planning rule. And if they're recommended, I think they should be managed to preserve wilderness character as as is sort of the mandate. And um, and that I do think should include prohibiting nonconforming uses. So. Yeah, mountain biking. Let's talk about mountain biking a little bit. So there's a, a push to open mountain biking in wilderness areas, and I guess it would be up to the district supervisors, perhaps, to implement, uh, you know, to say which trails they can or cannot be on. And uh, I am a mountain biker, um, but I as, say, as am I. Yeah, so you know, it's important that we're talking about these things, so we're not. You know, saying that there's one group versus another group, um, I think it's just right. a it's just a conversation of you know how how do we want to be looking at the Wilderness Act and balancing everything, and uh, you know this is happening with the Gallatin Range, right? It's, it's a big push to open right. a a recreation area that would be accessible from the Bozeman side, and this would break up the wilderness study area and the roadless areas to allow mountain biking there. What are your what are your thoughts about mountain bikes, and and how can we all come together? Well, I guess I have to start with um, you can be against the idea of mountain bikes in wilderness and not be anti-mountain bike. And I, sometimes the conversation just can't get started because people won't let that notion go. You know, when I when I hear you're locking mountain bikers out, I, we have the Wilderness Act doesn't like to lock a single mountain biker out. It just asks you to leave your mountain bike at the boundary. Uh, I. You know, like I said, I've been in these conversations for the last several years, um, and, and to be candid, to, to not to not hide anything, I've been very active in opposing the bills that the Sustainable Trails Coalition keeps trying to introduce and, and trying to get pushed through. Because I don't believe mountain bikes belong in wilderness. I think I think the one universal thing about wilderness thought is it's about humility, um, and it's about sort of meeting nature on nature's terms. Um, and I think mechanical transportation is an advantage for one species. And and so that being said, though, does it make me pause and think differently then about places that are left to be sort of parsed out and decided whether they fit in the preservation system? Yeah, it does. It makes me think long and hard about, uh, you know, I don't want to see us creating wilderness B. I don't want to see us to create a, a wholly separate system that does allow mountain biking. But I, but I am open to the idea of places that maybe, maybe my predecessors in the '60s, '70s, and '80s would 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 call me a sellout. But I think mountain bikers deserve an opportunity to ride in wild backcountry as well, with with the caveat that there are places that serve a real purpose by being wild. And if the presence of somebody being able to travel at, let's say, 15 to 20 miles an hour, changes the behavior of wildlife, as an example. Then, then I'm not going to just blanket say that, look, if there's wild country left and it's not wilderness, let's just cut it loose for mountain bikers. I'm not making that broad statement. But I am saying that I, I want to protect the opportunity for mountain bikers to have that that recreation spectrum available to them. But I am absolutely opposed to the idea of that spectrum being made by compromising the wilderness preservation system that we have today. So I will will forever stand in opposition to opening the Wilderness Act or trying to reinterpret the Wilderness Act or trying to pull out what was a flawed, misguided, immediately withdrawn Forest Service policy that came out that, that you know, that, that the sustainable trails community always wants to say that, that somehow the mountain bike use is a policy decision, not a law decision. It's very clearly a law decision. I'm opposed to that idea while not being opposed to the idea that mountain bikers deserve an opportunity for the full spectrum of, of ride opportunities. So I think we really need to be thinking about wildlife in all this, especially at, at this point in time and yep. really need to be looking at that. And, uh, very critically, <clears throat> um, most of our national forests are open to mountain bike use. I'm not going to give a percentage and I, I'm not a hardcore mountain bike rider. Uh, I don't travel around the country seeking, you know, the best trails or whatnot. I do a little bit of local riding here, so I'm not I'm not one to speak for the mountain biking community. But would you say that there's enough trails out there now, or at least enough opportunity for new trails outside of uh, outside of our roadless areas to um, 
you know, to meet the needs of, of bikers? I would say it feels like it to me, but I don't think I'm expert enough to know that. Like, like you sort of said, I'm a mountain biker, but I'm not of the mountain bike community because I don't want to BS anybody. I'm, I'm not like some hardcore avid mountain biker who is then going to, you know, I'm not going to try to project that as that you can be that and not recognize the fact that, you know, or, or believe the mountain bikes don't belong in wilderness. I, I, my gut tells me that there's enough there. It doesn't mean that there isn't going to be new, that I don't think that there probably will and need to be new ride opportunities for people. But as we both said, the wilderness preservation system in the lower 48 only makes up 2.7% of our land mass. That leaves an awful lot of places. Not that all of the, the, the you know, the other 97% of the country is open for mountain biking. I'm not making that argument, but I think there is opportunities there. And, and that's why there there is a hard line in the sand for me when it comes to the wilderness preservation system. Why, um, when it comes to looking at places that are being considered for additions to the wilderness, wilderness preservation system, while we need to think about, are we providing the full rec opportunity spectrum to mountain bikers, stuff like you just mentioned, um, wildlife and modifications to wildlife behavior that impacts wildlife populations, um, or other, other factors, um, that need to be considered. And, and that's, and honestly, that's true for every user group, right? It's not just true for mountain bikers. Um, it's true for, you know, permitting, um, big trail runs in grizzly habitat. One, you're asking for trouble and you're also probably modifying grizzly behavior because you've got 120 people running on a trail, you know, on a Saturday. And, you know, so, yeah, I think it's, I, I think the opportunities are by and large there, for mountain bikers and you know there's a lot of a lot of studies about who the who the average mountain biker is and who the average mountain biker is going to become over time um i know in the southeast most of the studies said that most mountain bikers wanted to ride places that were within 20 minutes of where they lived or worked because it was a pursuit that they could do after work and yet mountain bike systems were being built two hours from the nearest population center um, and then people were wondering why nobody was using it or why it was becoming hard to maintain. And uh, I think there's a lot of things we have to think about there. Right. Yeah, I can say that when I go for a ride, I enjoy scenery when I'm out there. It's certainly a part of the experience. And uh, wilderness and wilderness-eligible lands are, you know, have some of the best scenery out there. So I can I can see why some people might want to uh, be in those areas. But I, I'd also invite mountain bikers to like you said leave your leave your bike uh at the gate or at the trails at the trailhead and try to experience wilderness in the way that it's uh it's supposed to be i suppose i I don't want to sound like i'm trying to sell something here but you know i think yeah i think there's something to be discovered that some people are just overlooking yeah absolutely i mean there's there's a reason and and you know people will point to compromises in the act and there were and there were compromises in the in the act in 64 you know, motorized motorized boat use in some places, those those sort of things. Um, um, and, and this is sort of where maybe George and I, George Werther and I, maybe diverge. Is that the wilderness? There's already been compromise, but asking people to consider experiencing wilderness on wilderness's terms, um, I don't think it's too much to ask. It's it's the ultimate. As I said earlier, I think it's the ultimate example of us trying to be humble as a species. And in 2019, we're not very good at being humble as a species. And I think, I think asking folks to recognize that this limited part of our public land spectrum or this limited part of our land mass is a place that we, we might be asked to leave our favorite form of recreation at the, at the gate. I don't think it's too much to ask for the, all the other values that having wilderness brings to us. Even, you know, most important, is what wilderness provides for those who never even set foot in it. You know, Bob Marshall Wilderness Complex produces 3% of the total water volume in the Columbia River Basin. I mean, it's, it's well, not the complex, the Spotted Bear Ranger District part of the Bob Marshall Complex. Um, you know, uh, there's so many values, uh, and if we get pulled into too many of these recreation discussions, we, we, we tend to forget that recreation is just, you know, and, and one specific kind of recreation is just one piece of the values that wilderness represents so yeah that's great 
So can you tell me a little bit more about your organization and, and what you guys are involved with now? Sure, absolutely. Um, yeah, so as, as the Bob Marshall Wilderness Foundation, we partner with the three national forests and five districts to make up the Bob Marshall Wilderness Complex and serving as a partner to help connect the American public to the Bob and to the wilderness idea. And we do that through um, a very, very robust volunteer program. Um, every March, we publish uh, uh, about 40 trips that we'll do during the season. And our, one tough thing about the Bob is our season is fairly short. Being in the Northern Rockies, we pretty much can get in there in June and July and August, a um, little bit of September. Uh, but so in early March, we'll publish um, these 40 trips and people sign up to get out and volunteer on these trips. And they've ranged. We try to provide a full range of opportunities for folks to get involved in. Some of the trips might be park, camping at the trailhead and brushing the first couple miles of a trail. But most of our trips involve going into the Bob. Uh, most all of our trips are supported by our incredible uh, volunteer packer community that will pack our crews in uh, for their trip. But those those 40 trips will range from a three- or four-day trip to a nine-day trip. Um, you know, if we're doing work at a big prairie, the, the, the hike in is two days, and then work five days at a big prairie, and then hike out for two days. You know, there's a there's a modest deposit that we ask people to put down when they sign up for these trips that most people will end up making as a donation to the organization, but they can get that deposit back, but that's just a, sort of a vehicle to make sure people will show up because we put a lot of logistics and planning into these trips. So that's one example, and, and probably the biggest bucket of work we do is that sort of, uh, it's not all trail work, by the way. We have one whole crew leader that's designated to trips that all we do is, is noxious weed mitigation, dealing with non-native invasive species in the, in the complex, particularly in areas that have burned recently. We also have a, a wilderness ranger intern program. Uh, we'll have about 10 or 11 interns this year who will be embedded on the five districts that make up the Bob Marshall Wilderness Complex. They'll be also serving on our Wilderness Conservation Corps crew in creating opportunities for students that are interested in conservation work to come do a summer internship uh, with us. In the last few years, we've launched a new program called the Packer Apprentice Program, where we take on a couple packer apprentices every year, and they learn from some of our master backcountry packers and spend the summer helping pack our trips into the Bob. You know, that's a, it's a very unique skill, right, to know how to run a, a, a pack string of, you know, two to to five mules and, and um, how to pack and, 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 and safely practice defensive horsemanship. And so we, we offer a couple of packer apprentices every year. And, and then what I think you'll see us do into the future is take more of a role in educating the communities that surround the Bob and the communities across Montana and the Pacific Northwest about what makes the Bob special, uh, about how decisions that maybe the public don't understand get made. Is You know, we live in this era, the best example I can give you is we live in this era of obviously wildfires become sort of front and center in public consciousness. And the Bob is the place where we've allowed fire to play its natural role. I say we, the, the agency professionals that manage it, but uh, but with the support of society, we wildfires have been a part of of this uh, ecosystem for millennia, and they've actually remained a part of it even after wilderness designation. And now, since like about 1980 we've had a series of fires in the Bob that the Bob has kind of gotten back to a natural fire regime, which is going to mitigate threats to the communities that are outside the Bob. And the foundation is going to take a role in helping sort of become a pipeline for that information to get to the public. Um, and not just about, about, you know, wildfire, but, you know, I gave an example earlier about, you know, is the Bob an appropriate place to do white bark pine restoration work? Is is the white bark pine community has been collapsing from from blister rust and and other things, and and it has a cascading effect on other species, including grizzly bears. But um, and so we're we're sort of getting involved in the education piece. It's not been a big part of our past, but it is going to be a big part of our future. But we're also going to continue to do that big part of our past, which is help keeping the trails open, dealing with weeds. Uh, and most importantly, connecting people to the wilderness idea through service. And uh, uh, we also do a series of events every year. We have a wilderness uh, speaker series that we do with some other partners here in northwest Montana, and we have a, uh, our Voices of the Wilderness event um, at the end of the season um, every year as well. 
Um, but that's a, a little bit about what we do here at the foundation. And where can people learn more about you? So they can find us on the web at bmwf.org, as in Bob Marshall Wilderness Foundation. So bmwf.org. All right. Well, Bill, it's been a great chat. Anything else you want to impart? Uh, any events coming up? Um, anything we missed that you want to touch on? Uh, you know, the only thing I would say is, you know, pay attention to our website if you're if if you're intrigued by one of these ideas of of spending a nine day trip or a seven day trip or a five day trip into the Bob. It's a great way to experience the Bob um, by giving back. Um, and again, those trips go out uh, early in the year and, and the first of March. And uh, you know, we're we're going to be celebrating throughout 2020 the the 80th anniversary of the complex first being designated administratively in, in 1940. Um, and I guess the last thing I, I would leave folks with is, is what I'm most passionate about is to get the public to care as much about the system that we have as the one we don't. And by that, uh, what I mean is, is the, the advocacy community, while always also needing money, it has much more access to the philanthropy dollars in this country. Uh, and the stewardship community um, needs dollars too. Um, and I would like, you know, I just would like to see the American public love and care for the wilderness preservation system that we already have, because a lot of the energy and a lot of the money goes into the system that we don't have yet. And I'm, I'm obviously a practitioner of the, of the act as a partner with the agency. And it's just a very um, passion point for me. Okay. Well, thanks. Thanks again for your time, Bill. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for listening to this episode of Wilderness Podcast. You can find us online at wildernesspodcast.com. Don't forget to subscribe through your podcasting app. If you'd like to support this podcast, please visit wildernesspodcast.com backslash support. Thanks for listening.